start, okay? The first thing I want to say, we're in Daniel chapter 3, if you're wondering. The title of this message is Resolve to Worship. Resolve to Worship. I heard a pastor talk about the other day about the importance of taking notes during a sermon. And most of you guys do, which is great. Not judging the people that don't. But here's what often happens. People say, oh, I didn't get anything out of that message. After they hear the pastor preach, oh, I didn't really get anything out of that. That didn't really speak to me. How do you know? How do you know that what you hear today might be a word that God wants to speak to you next week? How do you know that the word that you hear today might be a word for somebody else that you meet during the week? And so writing down the notes helps you to refer back to it because you're like, oh man, the pastor said something, or I remember reading this in scripture, and I jotted down, and let me share this with you. You never know if what you hear today might not just be applicable for today, but tomorrow, or the next week, or the next month, next year. And that's how I feel with something that I feel the Lord spoke to me last year. It's almost been an entire year before I saw the fulfillment of something God spoke to me last year. So that's the first exhortation. The second exhortation really has to do with the story. And you guys know the story. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I'm going to make it really simple for you tonight. As we talk about this message, which is one of the most popular stories in the entire Bible, I think some Christians spend their entire lifetime running away from the furnace, the metaphorical furnace. What I mean by that is I think some Christians want to live a comfortable life where they never have to endure persecution, never have to endure teasing, never have to endure any kind of opposition. But listen, how will you see the power of God working in your life if you're always running away from opportunities for him to show you his power? If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego never went to the furnace, they would have never known the comfort and peace that happens even in the worst of all times. Sometimes the things that you go through, not saying they're easy, and not saying that, you know, they're good in and of themselves, but God wants to bring good out of it. And he wants to give you peace, even in the midst of the trial. And so when we're always running away from opposition, never wanting to be one of those people that's a Jesus freak, raising their hands in worship. And listen, if you don't raise your hands during worship, that's between you and the Lord. That's fine. Right? And everybody worships differently. That's, that's cool. But when you know in your heart of hearts that you're supposed to do something, you don't do it. You don't share with somebody at school. You're embarrassed to bring up the name of Jesus. You're embarrassed to even call yourself a Christian. Listen, how will you be able to see someone else's life transformed if you're not willing to represent God where you are? That's the first thing I want to say. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing. Third thing I want to say is this. I know a lot of you guys are on your cell phones. And maybe it's because you have the Bible app. We got the honor system here. You guys are like old. Come on. Like I don't have to, I'm not going to tap you on the shoulder and rebuke you because you're on your phone and you're like playing I don't even know what games they play this day. I literally haven't played games in probably in the entire duration I've had a smartphone. At least an iPhone. 2012 I got a first iPhone. I just don't have time for games. If you have games, that's fine. That's cool. But listen, can't you exercise self-control for 40 minutes? And if not, you're a byproduct of the man. You're doing exactly what the man wants you to do. Because you know what society says? Society says, teenagers these days are addicted to their phones. Anytime I hear that, I'm like, I'm not addicted to my phone. I'll show them. I'm not, not even going to look at my phone all day. I'll show them. 
Because people say, like, Alan, you're on your phone all the time. Like, oh, yeah? I'm going to go a week without my phone. Show you. You don't own me. Don't be a byproduct of the man. Don't let the man tell you what to do. You can survive for 40 minutes without texting people. You can survive 40 minutes without being on Instagram, social media, etc. And if you do it, I get it. Maybe you're posting something of the message today. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But listen, if you're looking at the person next to you and all they're doing is goofing around all service, be careful because that person may be slowing you down in your walk with God. That's all I'm saying. Now, that's a harsh word. I'm just being honest. If you want to run your, your race with endurance, you got to be willing to let go of the people that are going to slow you down. Okay? That's all I'm going to say. Now, listen. Last thing I'll say. That's number four. And then we'll actually teach the Bible. Last thing I'm going to say is this. I can't make you <laughs> want to do anything. Maybe you're sitting there today and like, who does this guy think he is? I don't know. I don't know who I am. I really don't. I'm just like a punk kid that if you saw me in high school, you'd probably think that he's like the weirdest loser ever who changed his style every, every year, like had a different group of friends. I was a weird kid. I don't know who I am. But today I'm representing Jesus, so I take that very seriously because I believe that the Spirit of God wants to do something in your life tonight. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that. Maybe you came here today and you feel alone. You don't have any friends. Guess what? God loves you. And God wants to show you his love. And if it means that I have to be harsh with some people so that those people, the people that are lonely, sense his love, I'm okay with that. Make sense? Okay. Book of Daniel, chapter 3. Some people run away from the furnace, but God wants to show his power in the fire. We're going to read verse 1 through 7 of Daniel chapter 3. We'll read it and we'll pray and we'll talk about what it says. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He had set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province, provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the sea traps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down, and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped this giant 90 foot by 9 foot gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's pray. And Lord, we do want to see you move tonight. We want to hear your voice. We want to know what it is you have for your people. And so I pray that I don't get in the way of what you want to do. And I pray that you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this giant image. As I said, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. Super skinny, super tall. This giant golden statue. Now, if you remember the last time we talked about the book of Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this terrible dream that kept him from sleeping and Daniel was the only one who could first tell him the dream and then interpret it for him. And as Daniel told him the dream, he said what? There is a statue with a head of gold. 
and then had a body and, and feet and, and everything else with different metals, symbolizing the most precious metal, gold, though the softest and weakest metal going down to iron, the strongest metal, but not the most valuable. So King Nebuchadnezzar, remembering what God had prophesied to him, established, only a chapter later, an image of gold. Now this is probably a couple of years later after the prophecy happened, but we can imagine that Nebuchadnezzar had seen the dream, had heard the prophecy about he has a glorious and beautiful kingdom. Probably, I would imagine, unmatched by even today's standards. We don't know what the, the, one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon, looked like in those days. But I can assure you that the Bible itself is saying here that it's a glorious and splendorous kingdom. And as kingdoms got stronger, they actually got less valuable. Nebuchadnezzar had a beautiful kingdom. And in rebellion to hearing that his kingdom was not going to be able to stand, he erects a completely gold image and demands people to worship it. He says he wants it with various instruments, all kinds of music. He wants people to bow down, people, nations, languages. Remember, they're a world empire, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to gather to worship this image. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's something I can't really envision. That's, that would never happen today, except it does, literally. Literally is happening today. Where? North Korea. You're not allowed to go to North Korea. Most of us aren't, especially with all the tensions today. Literally, there's a 66-foot statue, two statues of the two former dictators of North Korea where people have to bow down if you're in the presence of these two statues, golden statues, literally straight out of the Bible. It's crazy. And if you don't, you're persecuted, you're thrown in jail, you could be killed. And today, it's crazy. And like we live in the, like this, this tiny little world, right? Where we imagine these things don't happen anymore, we're sophisticated. But imagine you're living in that kind of society. That is the kind of society that Nebuchadnezzar was ruling over, except he ruled over the entire world at that time. Oppressive. And he was telling and commanding everyone that they must bow. Now, what would you do? What would you do if you were in this kind of situation? By the way, it was a 65-foot statue, just so you know. Fact check. What would you do if you were in this situation, you were one of the three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you were commanded, along with all people, to bow down to the statue? Maybe you're thinking, there are a lot of people on this planet. What are the chances they'll actually notice whether or not I bow? What are the chances? Maybe, maybe I'll just kind of do this little dip if people are looking and whatever, God knows my heart. What would you do? Hear what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Let me ask you a question. Are there going to be more people in heaven or more people in hell? The scripture here says, there are few that find it. Scary thought. Now, I'm not trying to scare you. Some people have different views. I feel personally, there will be more people in heaven. But that's besides the point. 
Because what Jesus here is stressing in this verse is that it's not easy to follow the way that leads to life. It's not easy to choose the road that no one else wants to go down. Now, you could be like Peter. Peter like, Psh, even if everybody else was made to stumble, Jesus, I will not be made to stumble. And then he denied Jesus three times. How do you know that you're not going to compromise in a weak moment? In fact, let me ask you this question, because I think this is a good heart-searching question, so everyone look up here. Really think about this. What would be tempting enough for you to compromise your relationship with God? What would be tempting enough for you to compromise your relationship with God? Think about it. If the devil and his, his demons are real and they are devising a plan to take you down, what would they have to do in order to tempt you so that you would compromise your relationship with God? We know what they did with Judas. 30 pieces of silver is all it took for him to betray Jesus. We know what he did with David and Bathsheba. He had a woman just right outside his palace for him to fall into sin. We know what it took for Esau. It was just red stew. Here's our first point for this evening. You might want to write this down. The world will always demand your worship and compete for your awe. The world will always demand your worship and compete for your awe. Listen, this is not just something that Nebuchadnezzar was doing. Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to worship his golden image. But it still happens today. The world that you live in is constantly trying to get you to value what it values, what it's producing. Just think about like what's on your, like if you're ever on Instagram, you see like those custom made ads, like how do they know I just came back from Target? It's like, how do they know I just bought that, right? It's because the world wants you to value the things that it's producing. It's the same thing with the devil and his schemes and the world system out there. They want you to be distracted. How do they do that? They do that by getting you to be wowed. By amazing you, distracting your attention. Fireworks are distracting, aren't they? Right? When you have a couple explosives that go off in the sky, it grabs people's attention. And if all you want to do is to get someone's attention, all you have to do is do something that's amazing. And so this is what the world is doing. They're teaching you what to love by trying to amaze you. So if God doesn't have our attention, is it because that he's not amazing? If we're distracted by things that are flashy in like the three-second videos because our attention spans are shrinking or whatever, if God doesn't have our attention, is it because that he, he needs like his two-second clip instead of the Bible? The Bible's way too long. Is that what God needs to do? He needs to shrink down his word? He needs to have like a good PR plan? He needs to have a marketing scheme to reach people? No. In fact... I think it's because we haven't sat down long enough to allow him to fill us with wonder. Isn't it enough that Jesus Christ died on the cross? What else do we need for him to do in order for us to be amazed? But listen, I don't want you to feel bad either. I'm not here to guilt trip you. 
I don't want you to feel like, I don't have motivation, therefore I don't love God. That's not what I want you to feel. Because here's the thing. You and I both know that we have friends that are like, oh my gosh, I just watched a series on Netflix. You have to watch it. It's amazing. And they'll tell me all the time, right? And, and what happens? You're like, oh, how many episodes? 32 episodes. Oh gosh, I just... And they're like, no, it's the best thing ever. You're going to just like, your life will be changed. We're going to watch a marathon. We're going to spend an entire day watching it. You're like, why would I want to do that? But then you watch it, and what happens? You're amazed, and you're captivated. You know what I'm talking about? Like, initially you're not motivated, but as soon as you do it, you can't stop. And you're like, I'm just going to watch one episode. And then, like, you're watching two seasons, and then it's like the next day you have to get ready for school. This is what happens, is that... If we need to be amazed by God, it's not because God's not amazing. It's because we're not taking the time to allow him to amaze us. We're not putting ourselves in a position where we can hear what it is that he wants to show us. So what we see here in Daniel chapter 3 is an example of three young men who resolved in their heart, they purposed to resist temptation because they had faith in God. They were able to resist the attractions, the distractions of the world, the pressure of the world for them to compromise because they knew God. They had that res resolution in their heart. Look at verse 8. It says, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, which is just Babylonians, came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, talk about a person with an ego problem, right? They're not worshiping me. Gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyres, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Right? It's like, how cocky can you get? And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing to these three men. But I love this. Check out verse 16. Chime in. If you're getting distracted already, say, not today, Satan. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they probably had to have been your age. Because this is how, how they answered. And said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Like, it, you, it comes a point in life where, like, you don't talk like that to rulers. And when you're, like, 40, where you're, like, mature, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this respectfully, and, like, you don't want to dishonor the king. And these guys are just like, huh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to answer you in this matter. It's, like, great. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But... If not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I love it. I love it. Notice 
that the three amigos, I'm going to stop calling them that. I don't have a better name for them. The three, what, how do you say three in another language besides Spanish? Oh, three, how do you say three, how do you say friends in another language? I have no idea what you said. Is that Korean? Thanks, Emily. I don't know how to say that. We'll just call them friends. The three friends. Okay, don't get distracted. It's my fault. Listen, notice how there was no delay in their answer. They didn't pray about it. At least it seems like that, right? They didn't just, ah, hmm. Well, let's have a holy huddle. We'll get back to you. Let me think about this. Uh, I could bow down and save my life, or I could die. Mm. They're just saying, ah, that's funny. We're going to have to answer you in this, but we're going to tell you anyway. Even if you kill us, we're going to be fine. Like, God will bail us out. You can try to kill us. It probably won't happen. That's kind of their answer. It's amazing. And that's because they had resolve. Resolve. Now, the word resolve in the dictionary as a verb means this. Decide firmly on a course of action. As a noun, it means this. Firm determination to do something. Resolve. I want you to keep that word in mind, and this is why. It was not the fiery trial that made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resolved. The trial only gave opportunity to reveal their resolve. What makes you strong is not the trial. What makes them resolved is not the fact that they had a trial, but they have purposed in their hearts prior to being tested that they would not bow down to this image. Listen, this is so important for you and I, that we resolve to obey the Lord rather than man ahead of time before you enter the trial that you will face one day. It's the same thing with dating. Ladies and gentlemen, if you plan on dating someone right now, you have to resolve in your heart what your standards are. Because if you not, if you, if you not, just ruin the moment. If you don't, in the moment, you're not going to be able to resist temptation. You're like, oh, it's like one in the morning. Should we go home? Ah, it's fine. Ah, oh, we're alone right now. It's just, ah, it's fine. Set standards. Resolve in your heart what it is you're going to do ahead of time so that when things are murky and you're not thinking straight, you already know what you agreed upon doing. It's the same thing with your Christian walk. Resolve in your heart that before you get to the class that you're going to stand up for the Lord. When you know your teacher doesn't respect the Lord, when you know your teacher is going to bash the Bible, you resolve in your heart what you're going to do about it. I remember being in high school and my teacher said, uh, I'm okay with Christians reading the Bible. You just can't read the King James because King James, he like edited the whole thing and he took parts out and he added whatever he wanted in. I didn't know what to say with that. I was like, uh, I know that's wrong, but I have no idea why that's wrong. I was in high school. I was your age. I was 17. Resolve in your heart that you know what you're going to say even before people ask you. Resolve in your heart when you go to college that you're going to stand up for the Lord when people ask you to write a paper to approve of a certain sin that you don't, you know the Bible condemns, which I was asked, resolving your heart what you're going to do beforehand. So when you're asked, you're like, this is not a surprise. I'm not worried. I know what to do. I'm going to stand up for the Lord and not stand up for the values that the world ascribes. It's so important that you resolve in your heart beforehand what it is you're going to do. 
If you're going to turn 21 one day, have standards. Are you going to drink? Are you not going to drink? Because if you cave under pressure, it reveals that you have a weak foundation. I hate peer pressure. I hate it so much. I hate the fact that anybody can pressure me to do something that I don't want to do. Hate it more than anything else. If you're a peer pressure person, stop it. It just like disgusts me. I want to be who God's created me, created me to be. And I won't listen to anybody else. If God asks me to do something, I'm going to follow him. Regardless of what people say. Doesn't mean it's easy. But I hate the fact that one day I could look back at my life and say, oh my gosh, I was not who I was created to be because other people wanted me to be something else. You find out that you are a creation of what other people's uh, had for you. John Maxwell has a great quote. He says this. Maybe you've heard it before. The faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. If you cave under pressure, it just reveals that you have a weak foundation. Don't blame your faith. I should say, don't blame the trial. You should blame your faith. I'm going to ask for AJ to give me this chair right now for a second. You just bring it on the stage. If I go down there, it's going to feedback. Okay. All right. Get a little Pentecostal here. Doing an object lesson. Can everybody see that chair? Okay. Zach, can you bring that chair up there? Yeah, one of those ones from the back. Bring it up here. Okay. You can set it up when you get here. Yep. This one over here, you don't have to sit on it. Thanks. Ashley? Yeah, you can stay up here. We'll use Zach. Okay. I asked Zach to bring up two chairs. This one is a good chair. That one's broken. That's why it's in the back. Now, Zach, do you believe if you sit on the good chair that it will hold your weight? Do you believe if you sit on the broken chair it will hold your weight? Not really. Okay. Well, why don't you sit on the good chair? Wow. Good job, Zach. It held him. Are you going to sit in the broken chair? Why don't you sit in the broken chair? Okay. He says it's broken, so he doesn't want to sit in the broken chair. Can everyone give Zach a round of applause? All right, you can put the chairs back. Okay. Why did I do that? <laughs> that was random. Here's why I did that. There's a difference between saying, I have faith that chair can hold my weight and actually sitting in the chair. There's a difference between saying, ah, oh, maybe it's going to work and then actually putting your feet on the ground and you're leaning down and sitting in the chair. How many of you have a faith that's not just a theoretical belief, but you've actually sat down in what God wants you to do? Many of you right now are living a life that's all experimental. You have no idea. You have no idea what it's like to live by faith. And that's why you're here. So that leaders are around you that can tell you stories of what it's like to, to trust God. Can tell you examples of people in their lives who have been healed of sicknesses. And where we see, we've seen God bring people back into the church and heal families and, 
and all kinds of things. And you don't have to wonder if God's real. You can ask people and then see it for yourself. Then you can take that step of faith and sit in the chair too. This is exactly the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. They knew God was real. They knew that he was going to provide. He gave them the jobs in the first place. They became wise men because of chapter 1, remember? They obeyed the Lord. They did not defile themselves with the king's delicacies, and therefore God raised them into that place of honor. So they put their faith in God. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, or that word actually should be endurance. But let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, it's interesting because that word trials in the book of James isn't just talking about hardships. It's talking about temptations too. It's literally saying, count it all joy, my brethren, when you enter various temptations. Now, I don't think anyone feels that way, right? Yes, I have an opportunity to lust right now. Thank God, I'm just so joyful. Nobody feels like that, right? That's just weird. But what God is saying is, it's an opportunity for your faith to grow. Every opportunity you have to deny the flesh, to say, I'm not going to check my cell phone right now. I'm not going to talk to that person right now. I'm not going to wimp out when, I, when that person asks me if I believe in God. I'm not going to be quiet in my class. Every time you deny temptations, it's an opportunity for your faith to grow. If you want your faith to remain small, all you have to do is do nothing. But if you're a good steward of what God has given you, he's going to increase it. So this is why number two, second point is this. We must resolve beforehand to worship God only. We must resolve beforehand to worship God only. And that's just a matter of like, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a person that literally just took steps of faith, said, God, I'm willing to step into what you, you have me to do. I want to see your power. I want to, like, I'm not good at evangelizing. I don't think I'm good. But I don't know, maybe you want me to evangelize. I'm going to do it. And you have an opportunity to see God's power and your giftings developed today. Why wait? So maybe you're thinking, I'll, I'll address an objection. Maybe you're thinking, well, what's so bad about bowing to a statue? Literally, like, why does God care if you just kind of do this little dip thing, right? Is that such a big deal? You don't have to mean it. What if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends, I should say, what if they, just in their feelings, in their heart, they worship God, and they just kind of like bowed for a second? I mean, they could rationalize saying, you know what, God put us into a position of power, so it only makes sense that we stay here. I mean, God can't use us if we're dead. So obviously, if I compromise just this one little thing, it'll be fine. Do you realize that's how many Christians compromise in their Christian life? Of course I have to lie, because if I tell the truth, oh my gosh, they're going to hate me. Of course I'm not going to tell my parents that. If I tell my parents that, they're going to think I'm crazy, or they're going to think that I'm depressed, they're going to worry about me, they're going to ask me all these questions. Christians use this dangerous thing called rationalization, so they don't have to, dis so they don't have to obey the commands of the Lord. So the assumption here is that you aren't really worshiping if your feelings aren't behind it. So the reason why you might rationalize saying it's not a big deal to bow is because you don't think you're actually worshiping if you're not 
having your feelings behind it. And I think actually this is why Christians don't often worship in church because they don't feel like it. You're in the worship setting, you don't feel like singing, you don't feel like raising your hands, you don't feel like, you know, what, focusing on the music. And because of that, you're like, I don't want to be ingenuine. I don't want to just sing about the Lord and whatever if I'm not, like my heart doesn't follow that. That's what you think, but listen, what if Jesus said, I don't really feel like going on the cross today. You know, guys, it just, uh, it just doesn't seem like it's going to be a lot of fun. Jesus did it because he knew it was going to be worth it. Listen, so many times praise and prayer is the best thing you can do when you're suffering. This is what Job did, right? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not true that you're not worshiping just because your feelings aren't in it. Because you can still worship because worship itself is an action. Moreover, what is everybody else going to think when you bow down? How are other people going to be affected? Man, if that person compromised, maybe, maybe I should too. Maybe I should just give in. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. If you bow down to the things of this world, you turn your back on Jesus. You can't simultaneously worship two gods at once. Imagine if you're married one day, like, Lord willing, you all get married, unless you have the gift of singleness. It's fine, too, I guess. Let's say that you get married one day, and you're like, ah, I don't want to stumble my single friends, and like, I have these people at work, and so like, the wedding ring's only a symbol, I'll just take it off. I don't want them to feel like, oh, he's married now, so I'm just not going to wear it. That'd be weird, right? And offensive. What about your spouse? How, how would your spouse feel if you never talked about her in public? It's like, oh, it's just kind of weird when I say I love you. It's like, can we not, not do that thing? Like, not hold hands. Just kind of like, people look at us and it's just weird. I don't want them to think, like, I actually love you. Like, I do. Just not that much. Right? Like, what does that do to the other person when you're saying, it's really not that worth it? Because you're being self-conscious. Isn't it true that Peter denied Jesus? And he could have rationalized, saying, oh, I didn't really mean it. I just did it so I didn't get in trouble. I mean, like, I could have died and stuff. So that's why I denied. But is that any less offensive to the person that you're betraying? That's why I would say, don't give the world even one ounce of the worship that God deserves. Ladies and gentlemen, don't do that. Because... God deserves all the worship that we can give on this planet. And the world is not worth it. Jesus didn't compromise. Even when the devil brought him up on a high mountain and said, I will give you everything in this world if you just bow down to me. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that's the case, our God wh whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. 
but if not. That's what he's saying. He says, he's going to deliver us, but if not, I'm still not going to serve you. That's the kind of faith that I want. And that's the faith that we, we need in this world. Because true faith in God is this. Faith in God, everyone look up here. Faith in God does not mean you believe that God will do what he is able to do. It means you believe that God will do what he will do. Huge distinction. Because many times when we pray, we're like, God, you're able to heal. God, you're able to do this. God, I know you can get me into that school. No, God, I know you can get that person to like me. We're saying all these different things in our prayers, saying he's able to, therefore he should. But faith in God does not mean he will do what he's able to do. It means he's, he's going to do what he wants to do. But how many of us, our faith is shaken because God doesn't give us what we thought he could give us? How many, how many times are we discouraged and like, I don't even know if God's real because I prayed and he didn't do this one thing I wanted him to do. He didn't heal this person. He didn't. How many times did we do that? But faith in God should mean that I know you can, but if not, that's okay. Because your ways are higher than my ways. And maybe I can't understand it. This is why Job, the entire book of Job, he's questioning God, why? And God never tells him why, but he shows up in his life. And then when Job sees God, he says, now I've repented. Because I've seen the one and true God. When we see God, we understand that his ways are better than our ways. And we may not be able to understand it now, but one day we will. This is what Jesus did in the garden. Which I don't think it's bad to pray this, by the way. I don't think it's bad to pray about possibilities. It's not a lack of faith to go up to God and say, like, Lord, is it okay if I have this? Is it okay? And here's how I know that. Because Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So do we really believe that God's ways are best? Because if not, your faith might get shaken because it doesn't have that strong foundation. Okay, here's the last point we'll talk about. Verse 19. Covering a lot of ground today, but hopefully this is helpful. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and expression on his face. Verse 19, changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cast them in the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, which is, you know, jeans, or whatever, their turbans and their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form, the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I love it. They were cast in the midst of this burning fiery furnace, and the people that thrown them in die because they heated the furnace hotter, seven times hotter than what it usually was. Commentary I was reading, uh, James Montgomery Boyce was laughing. About, I don't know if he was actually laughing, but he said something that was really funny. He was joking, saying, um, he's like, as if, like, 
the God of Israel could only deliver from like normal furnaces. So that's why I had to make it like super hot to ensure that they were going to burn. It's like if you go on fire, you're probably going to die either way. It's kind of funny. I thought it was funny. You don't have to laugh. So as this happened, they were cast in the midst of the burning fire furnace. And another person is in the midst. And we believe that this is something called a Christophany. It's a big theological word. Christophany. I don't know how to spell it. Ask Evan Margareta. He's a doctor. He can tell you afterwards. <laughs> Love you, buddy. So Christophany is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. An Old Testament appearance of Jesus, a Christophany. Love it. Here's what you can know. And this is your third and last point. Jesus does not let us go through hardship alone. Jesus does not let us go through hardship alone. You see, because what should keep us from compromise is knowing that the presence of God will be wherever we go. If we are following him, if we're listening to his voice, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I flee to the midst of hell, Sheol, even there you're there. This is what the psalmist says. That we can know that wherever God brings us, we can have peace that surpasses all understanding. In the midst of the trial. I don't know about you, but if God's going to be in the fire, I'd rather be in the fire than safe and comfortable in a place where God is not. Maybe you've heard of me talking about the killing the comfort zone before. Anyone here killing the comfort zone? I've said it a billion times. I'll say it again. I think it's a good analogy. People need to learn how to kill the comfort zone. Everyone wants to just do whatever's comfortable, do whatever's safe, never like talk to anybody new, never be able to evangelize, never do what the Spirit's prompting them to do. But listen, if you don't kill your comfort zone, your comfort zone becomes a coffin. What is a coffin? A coffin is a safe place for dead people. And a church that's filled with coffins is not a church. It's a cemetery. If you're going to church and everyone's in their comfort zone, then no one's going to talk to each other. And you would call that church a dead church. It's, it's so important that tonight, after we're done with the study, that's been way too long, I'm sorry. After we're done with the study, you don't just talk to your best friend. Talk to somebody new. Man, I am so grateful that people did not let my quirkiness and weirdness get in the way of them showing love to me. I'm so grateful that there are youth leaders that wanted to hang out with me, though I was like the strangest kid. Literally, back in the day, we didn't have Facebook or MySpace even, or Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat. We didn't have any of that. We had LiveJournal. And in my LiveJournal entries, I would just moan and complain about the girl that rejected me and about the fact that my day was the worst day ever because I stepped in my cat's hairball. Literally, that's one of my posts. Worst day ever, my brother took a shower and then he used up all the hot water, which actually is probably like a satanic thing, right? We would agree with that. Isn't that the worst? Like your sibling's like, I'm going to take a shower. It'll be like five minutes. An hour later, you get in the shower and then it's all cold. Okay, I still have issues, I guess. Oh, gosh. That would have been a terrible transition. Jesus doesn't, like, let us go through hardship alone. <laughs> that would be a terrible transition. Okay, I'm going to ignore that train of thought. Here's where we're going now. Where we're going is this. What keeps us from compromise? It's the love of God. When you love God, you recognize he loves you. You're not willing to compromise for all the lesser things in this life. 
they're appealing for your attention. Relationships are good, but they're not the ultimate thing. They're not the best thing. Money is good, but it's not the best thing. It's not the ultimate thing. All these things are supposed to point to God. So we recognize he's the good giver that gives us those good gifts. And we worship him and love him. It's not because God's selfish. It's because he wants us to get the most out of this life. And that's only in a loving relationship with him. And sometimes that means going through the fire. So in the end, what happens? Well, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically, Nebuchadnezzar's totally stoked out of his mind. Tells him to get out. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Everyone has to worship this God. I'm, he doesn't apologize. But he's like, this is just awesome. I can't believe this. You don't even smell like fire. And so he praises the Lord and tells everyone that they have to worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This all wouldn't happen if they didn't make a stand for the Lord. So in conclusion, I'd like to say this. Last, last thought. Maybe we should not put ourselves in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego like we'd be doing all sermon. But instead, pay attention, in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar. We're looking at a tyrant that just wants everybody to worship his image. But are we that different? When we're posting images online and we're waiting for people to like them, we're waiting for people to esteem them, waiting for people to reply to the selfie we just sent to 50,000 people, are we that different when we want people to worship our image? We're looking for affirmation from people, editing, making it an image of gold, making it the best image as possible. And then when people criticize us, we never handle it well because we always have to win. We always have to be right. Are we like Nebuchadnezzar? And if that's true, what do you do when your image shatters? What do you do when you're not cracked up to be everything that you hope to be? What do you do that as you are getting other people to worship you, you recognize that it costs Jesus his glory and, yes, even his life? That we have to put Jesus in the fire in order to be worshipped. This is what sin is, ladies and gentlemen. Sin is forget God and his worship and his glory. I want to seek my own glory. And that's why Jesus had to die for you and die. And though we sentenced him to death because of our pride and because of our sin, he loves us. He comes out unscathed and invites us to repent so that we can have eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes.